0: Profit and Purpose. For a long time, we have thought the purpose of a business is to make a profit. Does that need to change? Increasingly, we hear about purpose-driven companies. Can the two go together, profit and purpose? Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I'm Head of Investment at Joe Hambro Capital Management and Regnan. My guest today is Alec Edmonds, Alec is Professor of Finance at the London Business School. He's a Fulbright Scholar. He has a PhD from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, easier to say MIT, and was previously a tenured professor at the Wharton Business School and an investment banker at Morgan Stanley. And that's the short biography. His latest book, Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit, was an FT business book of the year. And I do recommend two of his latest uh, papers on the economics of ESG and is ESG even alive? I think you did talk about ESG being dead, Alex. So, Alex, thank you for making the time of coming to talk to me today um it's a uh, real pleasure you're very
1: welcome and it's really great to be here
0: yeah it's good to be uh, back in touch again so alex your, your thesis is that most successful companies don't really target profit directly but are driven by some sense of purpose you know, Let let let's talk through you know through that idea can you actually have purpose and profit in the same sentence
1: I think you can. And I think a good place to start is to recognize that there is not too much wrong with a company focusing on profit alone. And that might seem heresy for me to say that in 2023, because don't we want to say how much we dislike Milton Friedman's idea of focusing on profit? However, if you define profit as long-term profit, that will already get you to take many decisions in society's interest. For example, if I'm a car company, would I build electric cars? Well, the answer is yes. Even if I don't care about climate change, I could run a spreadsheet, and that spreadsheet will tell me that electric cars are going to be more profitable than petrol cars. Why? Because this is the way that the market is going. So, it's true that a focus on profit alone will actually get you to take a lot of socially responsible decisions as long as you define that profit as long-term profit. Then the question is, well, why do we even need then purpose? Why don't we just focus on long-term profit? And the reason for this is that spreadsheet analysis, while it can be helpful, and obviously as a finance professor, I should like to highlight the benefits of analysis, actually you can't reduce every decision to a spreadsheet calculation. Why? Because of uncertainty and risk. Now, the electric car example, that's risky. But we know how to deal with risk. Why? You can do a sensitivity analysis of an upside case and a downside case. The spreadsheet can handle that. But let's think about a different decision. Does a company want to introduce more parental leave for its employees? Now, we can't even begin to estimate how much more productive employees will be, how much more value they'll create for a company, there's not even a midpoint about which we can conduct a sensitivity analysis. So that's the idea of purpose. So let's take certain decisions without a profit spreadsheet calculation. Let's do it because we think it's good for wider society. And the evidence, and this is the main purpose of my book, Throw the Pie, is to suggest that even if a decision is motivated by creating social value, Ultimately, it can lead to profit because if you create social value, ultimately, people will be willing to pay you for this. So the power of purpose is inspires enables companies to take some long-term decisions that they would have not taken had they focused only on profit, even long-term profit. Why? Because of the limitations of the spreadsheet idea, the spreadsheet approach to investment.
0: I always felt that one of the problems with Milton's uh, Friedman statement was the maximisation of profit. The idea of maximising any system is always it creates fragility. You know, if you think you run your car engine at maximum capacity, chances are you'll you'll blow it up at some some point. And I think that's where that long term notion that you've just articulated around purpose really comes in and really hits home. And but you know there's a lot of criticism of shareholders about being too short-term is too short-term in their their perspective but did you th- do you think that actually matters when we come to think about that long-term shareholder value creation i think you made a really good point that while well, the shareholders might change in the short term the actual notion of the shareholders being re- rewarded is not specific to a one shareholder but it is to the the commons of the shareholder if you like
1: Yeah, I appreciate you asking this question, Andrew, because this is something I think is quite um, a bit misunderstood. So, people might argue, okay, yes, it's right for me to say long-term profit, but in theory, shareholders care about the short term. And they'll say, well, look at the shorter holding period. Some shareholders will hold their share for one year or less. Clearly, they're not going to look beyond that year. But that's not the case. Because Finance 101 tells you that the stock price is the present value of all future dividends until the end of time. So, if even if I only have a one-year holding period, let's say at the end of that year, I'll sell my shares to you. Well, when you choose to buy the shares from me, Andrew, you will think, well, what am I going to be willing to pay in one year's time? Well, that depends on the dividend in year two, three, four, until the end of time. So even though I will explicitly only receive the first year's dividend implicitly, I also get all the future dividends because that will affect the price at which I resell to you. And this is not just true in theory. It's true in practice, so why is it that Tesla and other similar tech companies have huge valuations which are greater than just their short-term profits? Well, that's because the market is looking to the long-term. Now, it is true that the market could be inefficient. The market might undervalue long-term cash flow. So maybe when I sell to you, maybe if you are myopic, Andrew, you're not gonna be willing to pay me for the cash flow in year 50. But on the flip side, the market could actually be um, too long-termist. There could be overvaluation of things such as electric cars. So if that's the case, if I'm a short-term investor and I want to sell after one year, I would encourage my company to invest too much in electrification because that would allow a sentiment-driven investor like you to come along. So it's not actually clear to me that a shareholder's holding period has any large significant effect on um, whether their horizon is long or short. Now, that's all conceptual arguments. That's when, if you look at the actual evidence, when shareholders engage with companies, do they encourage them to boost the short term at the expense of the long term? Actually, no. Many of the engagements, the reforms that they push, are things which are good for both the short term and also the long term.
0: In the preamble to our discussion today, we were talking about ESG and the sometimes almost willful omission of the concepts of finance or good investing practice from it. ESG has become a, an entity in its own own right as a, a thing that exists without any context. You know, your recent paper talked about the economics of ESG and you talk, you, you talk about it being ESG is everything but nothing special. Could you elaborate a little bit on on that sort of apparent dichotomy that it's everything but nothing at the same time?
1: Yes, absolutely. So there's two recent somewhat provocative papers that I wrote, but these are both for a practitioner audience. They're not just academic studies with loads of equations. The first is called The End of ESG, and the second is called Applying Economics Not Gut Feel to ESG. So let me just start with the first, and why I mentioned them together is they are quite closely linked. The end of ESG, well, how can I be writing a paper called the end of ESG in 2023? Am I just tone-deaf? Have I been living under a rock? Now it's the peak of ESG, right? There's so many ESG professionals within companies, ESG funds are on the rise, lots of professors are reinventing themselves as ESG experts. But why I call it the end of ESG is to highlight it's the end of ESG as a niche subfield. If indeed ESG is a way, of growing the pie, increasing long-term shareholder value, well, that's something which should be of interest to all investors, not just those who run ESG funds. A mainstream investor would want to make sure that the companies they invest in do create value for their stakeholders if this is going to lead to shareholder value. And then the implication of this is if indeed ESG is nothing special, but it's just like anything else, which improves the long-term value of the company, then we can apply basic mainstream economics principles to ESG. Now, there's many people who argue, well, ESG is so new. Finance is so stuck in the dark ages, we need to completely rip up finance textbooks and make up some new theories to deal with ESG. Now, Many of the listeners will know this book, Principles of Corporate Finance by Brealey, Myers, and Allen. I've actually joined that book for the 14th edition. I'm a co-author of that book. So I would love to argue I've completely scrapped and torn apart the prior 13 editions and written something radically new. But this is not the case because actually a lot of mainstream finance principles can be applied to ESG. Again, Finance 101 is the value of a company, is the present value of all future cash flows to the end of time. So this should give a big green light to carbon capture technology, to clean energy. These things will cost us in the short term, but they will pay you back in the long term. Therefore, the present value is positive. Another part of Finance 101 we've just discussed is that it doesn't really matter what the shareholder's holding period is because shareholders in general care about the long-term value of the company. It doesn't matter who happens to be an individual shareholder at a point in time. Now, it is true that there are some new things about ESG that we could not learn about just by readapting existing frameworks, but I think 80 to 90% of what we need to know about ESG, we can learn from these mainstream finance principles that have been tried and tested. We don't need to shoot from the hip. And the whole point of this paper, applying economics not got feel to ESG, highlights how there's a lot of learnings that we can get from these tried and tested principles.
0: There does seem to be quite a lot of sort of mythology around ESG, that ESG always makes you money, that ESG is a sufficient condition to have a good investment return or a good business model, but all the empirical evidence would question that. You know, it's not obvious that ESG is the gift that keeps giving because there are plenty of other factors that might overwhelm the specifics around an environmental or a social um, aspect of a company and, and certainly the way it's governed. Is uh, is probably a bigger determinant uh, in many cases. Do do you think that we, as an industry, tend to misuse or misrepresent the way that we talk about ESG as a as an invest as a, as a even a factor? I always have some scepticism that ESG, in it, as, it's, as the acronym, is actually a tradable factor. It, it seems to me it needs to be divided up into the uh, into the components to understand it and to be put into the context of the, the, the situation of individual companies.
1: Yes, I do think we misunderstand and misapply it for, for two reasons. So the first is exactly the reason that you, you mentioned, Andrew, is that we think about ESG as this big monolith. We put lots of things under the ESG umbrella, and therefore we make sort of sweeping claims that ESG always pays off for it never pays off. But ESG comprises lots of different factors, and some might pay off and some might not. For example, um, my work looks at employee satisfaction. That's one of the S factors, and that does pay off in the long term because there's a logical economic reason for why treating your employees well is going to be leading to long term shareholder value. But another aspect of ESG might be corporate philanthropy, and that's something where it's less clear why corporate philanthropy will lead to long-term value. Even if shareholders are socially minded, it could be that you and I are both shareholders of a company. I care about cancer research, you care about animal rights. And if the company was to donate to um, Cancer Research UK, I might be happy, but you might be unhappy. So that's uh, an argument for why maybe philanthropy does not work, but maybe employee satisfaction does. And also ESG, um, as a, a phrase, that fail to recognize that there's often trade-offs between different ESG issues. So if I'm an energy company and I shut down a polluting plant, that's good for the environment, the E, it's bad for um, employees, the S. And so I think to think of this as a big aggregated term is often quite um, misleading because some ESG factors might work and others will not. The second reason why I think we misunderstand the term is that this ESG label sort of puts it into a special category which divides gravity. So because this ESG term has a label, we think ESG issues are able to have some special magic power that no other economics issue has. So what do I mean by this? Often when I take an ESG statement, I will remove the word ESG and to say, well, does that statement still make sense? For example, ESG investment always pays off. Let's remove the word ESG. Investment always pays off. Well, it doesn't, there's diminishing returns, but we don't want to have as much capital expenditure as possible, yet we always think that the more we spend on employees and the environment, that's always gonna pay off. No, it needn't do that. Also, is investment good for a firm? Well, it depends on circumstances. Right, It depends on whether you're an economic upswing or a downturn, but we think ESG is always going to be uh, positive. Let me now turn it the other way to make sure I'm going to use the argument for a pro-ESG case rather than negative ESG case. If you look at the debate which is happening um, in um, the US, there's arguments that we should ban – Um, certain investors from taking ESG risks into account. They're saying ESG risks, taking this into account is a violation of fiduciary duty. Let's remove ESG. Should we take risks into account? Absolutely. Taking risks into account is consistent with the fiduciary duty. It's not a violation of it. And so the view that ESG is always good, it's this magic term, or it's always bad, it's this devil term. That is not the case. We want to take risks into account we want to understand investment, but we know that investment is not always paying off. If we remove this ESG halo and just think about risks and investment, we're going to have a much more nuanced view than the current black and white polarisation that we see.
0: And as an investor, that's very much how I see it. It's just one of the many inputs that compete with other issues, whether it be interest rates, inflation, competitor analysis, patents. Um, All the other myriad of influences that uh, influence the valuation and the success of a a business model, to think about it as being divisible from good investment is to limit your investment choices and I think makes you a suboptimal investor.
1: Mm. It's just an expansion of the information set, the set of factors that you're taking into account. So, So why did I look at ESG to begin with? My first paper on this was the employee satisfaction paper, which I started in 2007, just as I was finishing up my PhD. And that paper does not mention the word ESG anywhere, right? That term was much less common than it is nowadays. Why did I choose to look at employee satisfaction? Well, if you want to find a way to beat the stock market, I thought you can't just look at tangible factors like profits and dividends and cash flow. Why? Because other investors will take this into account. Let me look at an intangible factor, because an intangible factor is less likely to be priced in. And so the whole idea of ESG is if it allows you to take intangible factors into account and it expands your information set, then it can be positive. But I'm absolutely not claiming that employee satisfaction is the only important thing about a company which trumps productivity and innovation. And if I was to defend the term ESG, perhaps the only sensible reason for why these three things, which are quite different from each other, why do they get bandied and put in the same bracket is they are all generally intangible factors where maybe 20 years ago people did not realize the significance of them for long term financial value. And it might have been just coincidentally. People recognize the relevance of governance at the same time as they they recognize the relevance of ENS. And that's why they all got banded together, even though, as we've discussed, they are quite different things.
0: Yeah, I often turn it around and say it's not the case that ESG makes you money, but it's not by considering environmental and social factors and how a company is governed that you could miss out on potentially material information and have an incomplete data set. It is about getting the the full range of information to make well-informed decisions and that those well-informed decisions will vary across industries and time um, according to the the individual conditions of companies. So it's just trying to make it into a label that you try to attain for its own right, I think Mm -hmm. is sort of uh, can be very uh, disconnected from the actual investment decision making process.
1: I agree. And this is just like any other intangible factor. So, how would you evaluate whether to buy or sell a company? Obviously, you do this much more than I do in your your day job. Yes, you'd look at some some of the fundamentals uh, related to the company, its um, competitive position, the industry outlook, its uh, financials. But you would also want to look at management and look at management competence and, and these, these other factors. If you didn't, you, you might still make a good investment by accident. But why wouldn't you want to take into account this additional driver of, of value, which is management competence and management quality? And it's the same with ESG. Right? Maybe in many cases, you would still get the right decision without it. But why not look at this additional relevant source of information just to have a richer and more overall assessment about the company's quality?
0: No, Exactly. And on your point about have we hit peak ESG, I'll give you an anecdote that before I came up to do this podcast, I was talking to one of my colleagues who's uh, at a conference and she commented that nobody uh, has ESG in their title anymore. They're all head of sustainable investing or head of impact investing. ESG has now become a sort of well-worn acronym, and we've all moved on and we've created a new label. So, uh, so actually, even in job titles, we've seen peak ESG has uh, has passed actually.
1: And I think this is a, a good thing because it means that ESG is no longer seen as niche, it's seen as mainstream. So what I write in um, the end of ESG paper is one might argue there's no such thing as ESG investing. It's just investing. right If you are looking at ESG factors because this improves long-term financial returns, then any investor should do this. This is just the principles of investing is to look at things which will affect long-term value but not necessarily be fully priced by the market.
0: Yes, I always talk about putting ESG back into investing. It's ESG in investing, not ESG investing. You know, it's uh, mm, and it's interesting yes. that as you said, this you know some of your views are quite controversial. You know, and that they can be viewed from maybe the sort of more um, you know, values-driven approach, or maybe some of the more political right-wing viewpoints. But to me, it just seems like good economics, good mm. financial decision making and hence good investment choices. It's not about being prescriptive, it's about assimilating, assimilating a rich vein of information that sometimes is very material to the investment outcomes that we're seeking.
1: Thank you. I think if people and the controversies, if people look at the sort of the title, of the first sentence, of I'm saying, OK, we should no, not have ESG anymore, that's not saying ESG is dead. It's actually so alive that it's ingrained within us. You would never have a title as uh, I am the financially profitable investor. Well, it's taken for granted that investment should be financially profitable. And similarly, you shouldn't necessarily have a title ESG investor because it should be taken for granted that you should consider ESG issues and ESG risk
0: And one of the the sort of new words that's come into the lexicon of investors um, is shareholder, uh, stakeholder capitalism, you know, so. Mm And that sort of now being sort of like seen as an extension of ESG and thinking more holistically about um, the broad stakeholders that companies serve. But how how do you think about that? How do you you, you think you, you mentioned Friedman and you obviously said that the only social responsibility of a company is to maximise profits, well within the bounds set by civil society and and, uh, and and laws. But how do you think about the role of Social responsibility, and, and I'm thinking here a little bit about how we should be engaging on these issues as uh, as shareholders. Is is that our is that our role? And you know, how, what's the interplay there with that broader societal set of values?
1: Yeah, this is an important question because stakeholder capitalism, this is one of the buzzwords of the day, but people bandy around this term without a clear definition of what it is. So I don't know any clear definition of stakeholder capitalism in any important like investment dictionary or any other places. Um, And it can refer to many things. So one interpretation of stakeholder capitalism is the use of esg factors to maximize financial returns there was a larry fink letter i think it was last year saying stakeholder capitalism is capitalism but if so it's the same as shareholder capitalism like milton friedman explicitly said in his article that a company that maximizes profit should be investing in its communities And contributing to government. Why? Because a great vibrant community that is going to be the main source of customers, it's going to be the main source of employees. So, again, as long as you define profit as long term profit, then long term shareholder capitalism is actually the same as stakeholder capitalism, taking stakeholder issues into account for the pursuit of long term value. But there's another. Um, reason for stakeholder capitalism is, well, let's pursue stakeholder issues even if it's at the expense of long-term financial returns. Why? Well, the idea that if you grow the pie, everybody benefits, that applies to many things, but there are certain decisions where there are trade-offs even in the long term. So let's think climate change. Well, who might suffer from climate change? Well, it might be real estate companies owning waterfront properties or farmers and so on. But maybe the oil and gas companies that cause the pollution, they're not necessarily going to be the losers, even in the long term. So there's an externality there. And maybe the externality is not fully addressed by the government because of there's not sufficient political willpower for a carbon tax. So in that case, there is a role of stakeholder capitalism beyond shareholder capitalism, which might be to force companies to take into account stakeholder issues, which they would not do otherwise because they don't fully feel the consequences of that. But if that's the case, I think shareholders would then need to be clear that they are making a sacrifice by doing this. So, there's often the argument that what's good for stakeholders is always good for society. That's true in many cases, but in some cases, it may well be that you are sacrificing returns to do that. If you give management a clear green light to pursue stakeholder issues at the expense of shareholder value, then that's fine. I think the problems arise when management themselves unilaterally decide to take actions to address stakeholder issues without the um, mandate from shareholders, or sometimes asset managers try to pursue stakeholder issues without a mandate from their clients. So this is why there's controversy around uh, the Net Zero Asset Management Alliance. Is this consistent with fiduciary duty? Some investors have signed up for this. Not realizing that maybe their end client, their beneficiaries, might actually prefer them to maximize long-term returns. Why? Because there might be a pension fund. So, to cut a long story short, if stakeholder capitalism has any meaning beyond long-term shareholder value maximization, it must be pursuing something at the expense of long-term returns. But then you should only do that if you have uh, ultimate um, uh, sign-off from the next person in the investment chain. If it's a company, your shareholders should back it. If you're an asset manager, then maybe your asset owners should back it. And I believe that you have both an asset manager and an asset owner hat, Andrew. So, I'd love to hear your, your sort of thinking on this, because is it that asset owners realize that some of these great things like decarbonization would be at the expense of shareholder returns potentially, and are they willing to make that sacrifice? Uh-
0: some are, many aren't in, in, in reality. The fiduciary duty to look after the long term retirement interests of their members by producing returns that are in line with regulated activities. Remember, you know, it's a very, the pension industry is a highly regulated activity. There's uh, a lot of responsibility placed on uh, uh, trustees now, you know, personal liability and responsibility. So they have to discharge that that duty to ensure that they meet those financial obligations. Now, you often find there is then a tension in those discussions between meeting a climate uh, aspiration... With maybe meeting the the financial returns, and I think what we're finding is that there's a really active debate going on with the asset owners. You know, you, is it best done through shareholder engagement? Is that better done by the, the actual asset owners rather than the investment managers? Should they be telling the companies directly what they as the truly long term owners want of, of business uh, and they're, they're interplay with other stakeholders in the economy? Um, and also, you know, the role of divestment uh, as well, you know. And so and it, it does split into two. There are, there are those who think that engagement is the best way to drive change and support a transitioning economy. And there are the others who just feel that they don't want to be exposed to those externalities because it represents a long-term financial risk that's hard to quantify at any point in time but we know has a high risk potentially being internalized into those longer term return streams. So I don't think that there's any one um, answer to it. And, and I also find there's often the dichotomy between how they view their public market assets and their private market assets as well, whereas they're probably a bit less climate aware in their private market assets than they are possibly in their public market assets. So, and I think this is one of the big, you know, the big topics that we need to handle in the investment industry is there is a plurality of different views. There is not one hegemonizing approach to ESG. There is not one view of what good looks like. And I know you've written about the fallacy of metrics in, in ESG. And in some ways, the fact that we can't all agree on what good ESG is, and I'm using being very loose in my use of ESG here, but, you know, if we don't, we should have a divergence of views because you know I've, uh, we've got a whole range of different strategies from people who look at you know, generating income from equities to people who are very growth, people who are small cap investors, some are regional. For them, the context of considering environmental and social issues is going to be very different according to the objective that they have for the, fu- for the fund. Some are growth opportunities, so, and others are risk you know, risks that they need to consider. One thing that does unify all of them is that good governance is something that they do strive for or at least improving governance because the worst governed companies typically do destroy shareholder value in the long term. And that's the one thing I do feel certain about with ESG is that really bad governance is not associated in the long term with good shareholder outcomes and generally not with good stakeholder outcomes either.
1: That's really interesting. It's, it's a very important point because um, the discussion of ESG nowadays, it's nearly always on the E and the S, right? People think about things like climate, water usage, biodiversity, gender pay gap, diversity, inclusion, these are all really important things. But the actual evidence for G is stronger than for the ENS. The academic research on the G is, is decades old, and this is something where there's fewer measurement issues. For example, you can look at things like Is a director independent or not? That's something where there's an unambiguous measure of it. So we can look at the effect of board size, board structure, board overboarding, And and find results. Uh, But actually, when we think about ESG, we often think about the E and S and and forget about the G. And when you have the E and the S, there is a disparity of opinion. So ESG ratings, which often focus more on the E and S, they disagree with each other. But as you're saying, Andrew, that's not a bad thing, because it could be that companies have different views as to what E and S issues are more important. One rating agency might think lobbying is a bad thing, so they include corporate lobbying in their EMS score. Another rating agency might think, well, lobbying is, is not bad. That's contributing information to a government inquiry, so you should be allowed to do that. And this disparity, another word for disparity, is diversity, which ironically is something that ES investors should actually like. So I think we should embrace the diversity of opinions on EMS. The whole idea that there should be one supreme being let's say, the World Economic Forum, which devises a set of stakeholder capitalism metrics that every company needs to report, I think is is not good because um, different investors might think different ESG issues are more or less important. And also, many of the most important ESG metrics will be specific to a company. For example, for um, Unilever, it might be how many people do we reach with our hand-washing program? Well, that applies to Unilever, not other people. Um, For NatWest, they might look at the number of female and minority entrepreneurs they give loans to. Now, one could argue there's nothing to stop them reporting over and above the standardized metrics. But whenever something is standardized and comparable, it will get more attention than something which is bespoke. That's why there's so much fixation on quarterly earnings that is argued to be standardised and comparable, and that fixation will be at the expense of some more important drivers of long-term value which might be more specific to one individual company. Um, So I think the idea that you can't measure ESG in a completely unambiguous way is really important, but there are many people who think, "Oh, once we have global standards, then this is going to be a panacea i don 't think this will ever be the case because there's many aspects of ESG which you cannot measure because they 're inherently intangible.
0: I like the way that you separated governance from environmental and social because you know i 've been in this industry nearly forty years, and governance has been a very important determining factor of your Choices in investment. And when it comes to corporate engagement, I think we almost give all the emphasis to E and S now without thinking about the engaging around the governance of companies and their capital allocation and the other decisions that are going to support the financial profitability of a company that will also then support their good environmental and social outcomes. We sometimes put the you know, the order of preference the wrong way around. We do need to have financially resilient, financially robust companies and who are correctly thinking about the allocation of capital for those long-term shareholder returns. Absolutely.
1: If you're a shareholder and you want to get brownie points or positive coverage in the media, you might make a proposal on an ESG issue, such as a report on your plastics usage or phase out plastic straws. These things are important, don't get me wrong, but these things often any forward thinking board should have sight on it already. So why does it necessarily need to make a report available to the public if they're studying the issues themselves? And in contrast, if an investor was to engage on capital allocation or strategy or innovation or the CEA succession plan, they will not get as positive coverage as they would do from engaging on the E or the S issues, even though it might be that those issues are most important for long-term value, and importantly, not just long-term financial value, but long-term social value, because if you don't have a good succession plan, the next CEA may destroy value for both shareholders and society. If you're wasting capital through excessive mergers or overinvestment in negative uh, projects, then that's also a waste of not just financial resources, but society's resources as well.
0: So, getting towards the end of our conversation, I wondered how you would sort of sum up the future of ESG, other than ESG dies as an acronym. But uh, is there a... a future for it or is it uh, just going to fade away because it is just business as usual
1: i think it's just it as mainstream and therefore if this means it fades away then that's not a bad thing if it becomes something which is then ingrained In the investment process, we realise that, as an investor, we need to take into account um, ESG factors. And that's that's true for intangible assets, more generally. Previously, it might have been that one studied uh, profits and balance sheets and property, plant, and equipment. We now know, to take into account brand and innovation, that is taken for granted as an investment principle. And then, hopefully, in the future, we will realize that we need to take into account other intangible factors such as ESG issues. And my other hope is that when we do this, we make sure that these are based on sound economic principles. We don't think that ESG issues will defy gravity and be able to do certain magical things that no other aspect of investing is able to do.
0: Alex, thank you very much for your time. A fascinating discussion. And of course, thank you to our listeners. Organising the Future is available on Spotify, Spotify, amazon and apple podcasts please subscribe to be sure to catch every episode if you would like to learn more about investment opportunities at Jo Hambro capital management or at regnan please do contact your representative. details about us about our funds and our approach to investment are on our website just search for Jo Hambro in your favorite browser thank you